From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we have a new segment of Trump Talk. This week we take up the question, who is Jared Kushner and why does Donald Trump listen to his political advice? Amy Willens will explain. For starters, he's married to Ivanka. Also, the latest about Edward Snowden will speak with his attorney, Ben Wisner. But first, the huge news we got last week. The Obama administration declared it was ending the use of private prisons to incarcerate federal inmates. This announcement came after The Nation magazine published results of a year-long investigation that uncovered dozens of questionable deaths and years of dire warnings from internal prison monitors. That series of articles in The Nation was written by Seth Fried Wessler. He's an independent reporter, a senior fellow at the Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism, and a reporter for the Investigative Fund at The Nation Institute. He's reported for ProPublica, This American Life, PRI's The World. He was named a Soros Justice Media Fellow. Seth, welcome to the program, and tell us exactly what was in that announcement by the Justice Department. Thanks for having me on. You know, few people know that the Federal Bureau of Prisons, for about 20 years now, has operated a sort of subsystem of private facilities. Uh, Right now, there are about a dozen of them, and they're used nearly exclusively to hold non-citizens convicted of federal crime. The announcement from the Department of Justice last week essentially ordered the Bureau of Prisons, which holds federal prisoners, Uh, to start shutting down those private facilities uh, in the next several years and in five years from now to zero out the number of people entirely who are held in these contract facilities. The investigation uh, that I did, just uh, the last piece was published just a few months ago for The Nation magazine, was an investigation into precisely these prisons, these federal prisons. private prisons used to hold non-citizens. How did you get onto this story? Where did you start with investigating private prisons? You know, over three years ago, I got a call from a woman in California who told me that her brother had been held in a federal prison in Mississippi and had died there following what she said was pretty significant medical negligence. Complaints like this aren't terribly uncommon, but what she described sounded extreme, and I began to dig. And so I filed a Freedom of Information Act request to the federal government to try to find out more about what medical care was like in, these, in, in, in the facility she was talking about, and, and sort of learn more about the facilities in general. And I, and I ended up diving into this whole world of these federal private prisons, and about a year and a half ago, began to receive what ended up being about 30,000 pages of federal records that opened up this world to me of really what happened inside of these these prisons that are run by companies, including the Corrections Corporation of America, Geo Group, and a company called Management and Training Corporation. The files contained the full prison medical files of 103 men who died well held inside of these facilities detailed records of the final days of their lives. And in a third of the cases that we were able to review with the help of 
several dozen medical doctors who volunteered their time, we found that medical care, substandard, in some cases clearly negligent medical care, had likely contributed to premature death. And so these files began my, this process of reporting into, the, into what medical care looks like in these facilities. And it's, it's a really grim picture. 30,000 pages, 103 men who died. Prisons have medical units. What, what did you learn about the medical units in these private prisons? You know, nobody thinks that medical care in prison is good. It's sort of notoriously bad in general. But what I found was that in these prisons, care is being stripped down to the barest bones, sometimes to the point where men held inside aren't receiving any substantive care at all. So instead of hiring registered nurses and nurse practitioners and doctors, these facilities have been relying on what are called licensed practical or licensed vocational nurses. They've got about a year of training and they're often functioning as the front line and sometimes sole caregivers for thousands of prisoners. So I found cases where men would complain of significant and worsening pain and illness for months, sometimes more than a year, and be seen nearly only by these licensed practical nurses as they became sicker and sicker until in some cases they died of what would have been, could have been treatable illness HIV that became full-blown AIDS, cancer that could have been interrupted, uh, mental illness, people who had serious mental illness and were provided no mental health care at all, sometimes never seeing a psychologist or psychiatrist and ending up killing themselves in their cells. It was just a kind of uh, systemic, these systemic breakdowns in, in care that repeated for years over and over again, more and more people dying. I understand that your sources included not only this amazing collection of 30,000 pages of medical records from the Bureau of Prisons, but you also talked to former prison guards and former prison doctors. How did you find them, and how did, how did you get them to cooperate with your investigation? You know, after I received these records, I began to dig into the details of some of the cases, reaching out as if I could find them to families of the, these men who died or to cellmates who had spent time in cells with, with these men, and then also to some of the medical workers whose names appeared in the files. And in a number of cases, I quite simply went to their doors, usually in Texas and not, in hopes of being able to talk to them. And in a number of cases medical workers in these facilities were open to, to talking with me because they felt quite clearly that the care that they were part of providing was simply not adequate, simply did not meet the standards, their own standards of medical care, and that they couldn't do anything better because they entirely lacked the resources to do that. A medical director in a facility that I looked at, a place called Big Spring run by the Geo Group in Texas, he, his notes in his records were just sprinkled with these angry, indignant sort of uh, flourishes about the, the shabby care that he felt like he was required to sort of oversee and could do very little about because he wasn't being allowed to by his sort of corporate bosses. And I understand you also went into uh, Mexico to track down family members. That, that sounds like a challenging undertaking. No, I did, although I have reported a lot from Mexico, and so it wasn't, um, you know, it was, it was a place that I felt comfortable going and meeting, meeting people whose relatives had been locked up in these facilities, or men who had been previously locked up in these facilities, um, who I talked to 
in a number of cases to get more details about a, a riot that happened in one of these facilities. It started as a protest and then guards working in a private facility called Willacy in South Texas responded to this protest with extreme force using rubber bullets and tear gas and exploding BB-filled grenades. And that pushed a protest into a riot, which ended up actually leaving the facility so burned and charred that the federal government declared it uninhabitable and closed that facility. That was about a year and a half ago. The second part of your investigation had to do with what the Bureau of Prisons knew about medical conditions inside these private prisons, when they knew it, what they knew about the medical failures there. What did you find out about that? Well, you know, after releasing the first part of my investigation in January and February in The Nation, and then a version of that story aired on Reveal News, a public radio show from the Center for Investigative Reporting, after I released this this the story, a whole new trove of federal records started to appear in my inbox through my FOIA lawsuit. And those records showed that the federal government for years had known about the very medical failures, medical negligence that I had been documenting in my previous story, had in fact sent monitors into these facilities and those monitors, those federal monitors, had sent paper back up to Washington showing that time and again, these prisons were failing to provide people inside with adequate medical care and documenting 34 deaths in the wake of subpar, um, sometimes negligent care. These records had been, you know, carefully made uh, uh, notes about really extreme problems in the facilities. But what I found in the course of my reporting and talking with Bureau of Prisons officials who were tasked with overseeing these facilities is that even after these warnings went up to Washington, federal officials in Washington really refused to use the enforcement muscle at their disposal to force change. So they wouldn't impose fines that were available to them. And in cases when local monitors tried to close down failing facilities, they were told by their bosses at the top of the BOP that they wouldn't be allowed to do that. And so these facilities continued to operate. In, a, in one facility in Mississippi, the Adams County facility, local monitors tried to shut it down and they weren't allowed to. And a year after the contract was renewed for another two years, five men died inside of that facility that the federal monitors found following sub substandard medical care. We're talking here about the Obama administration Justice Department, of which the Bureau of Prisons is part. Why do you think the Obama administration didn't respond to these reports of negligent medical care? You know, I think that this sort of subsystem of private prisons has become a major part of the way that, uh, of, that the Bureau of Prisons functions. It's worked or it's, it's functioned for 20 years like this. And the Bureau of Prisons has maintained a significant degree of autonomy. Bureau of Prisons officials who I interviewed told me that their inability to hold these companies accountable stemmed in not insignificant part from pressure from the top, from leadership of the BOP who were deeply connected to leadership in the private companies that they were supposed to be watchdogging. And those connections were a result of the fact that leadership of those companies, their former Bureau of Prisons officials who left their jobs in the Bureau and took highly paid positions 
in, in private industry. Um, in fact, the key person who stopped the closure of that Adams County facility, the sort of chief money person for the Bureau of Prisons, last year, the end of last year, he left his job as well at the Bureau of Prisons and took a pretty lucrative contract with the Corrections Corporation of America as a consultant. <clears throat> really disgusting story. Let's go back uh, for a minute here. Why did the federal government turn to private prisons in, in the first place? I understand that Republicans want to privatize everything. Is, is that the whole story here? In fact, the privatization of federal prisons began in the mid and late 90s during the Clinton administration, during a period of time when the Clinton administration was also really pushing privatization as a, an alternative. The size of the federal prison system was growing. The size of the population of federal prisoners really began to skyrocket in the 90s. And in an attempt to find beds for this growing population of prisoners, the Clinton administration and Congress decided to pursue a privatization strategy. And then, several years later, the Bureau of Prisons made the decision that they would begin to use private facilities exclusively to hold non-citizens convicted of federal crimes. And over the years, the people who were held, non-citizens who were held on federal crimes, increasingly were people charged with what's called illegal entry or illegal re-entry, re-entering the country after a deportation, that's now treated as a federal crime, not an immigration violation, but a criminal violation. And people can face years sometimes in federal prison as a result. So in addition to the drug war that began to balloon the, the size of the federal prisoner population, the sort of immigration crackdown also criminalized huge numbers of people. Now about half of all federal prosecutions are immigration or border crossing crimes, and that's helped to drive the expansion of this prison, of this private prison system. The Bureau of Prisons says that non-citizens are an ideal group of people to be held in private facilities because these private facilities, which are intentionally kind of stripped down and don't provide the same kinds of services and programs, Non-citizens who will later be deported, the government say, don't have to be provided the same sort of re-entry services that citizens would. So they're an ideal group for these private facilities. Were you surprised by the Obama announcement that they were going to close the private prisons? I think, uh, frankly, everybody was surprised. I did expect that over the coming years, as the size of the federal prison population does slowly begin to shrink, I expected that the number of privatized beds would shrink somewhat, but I had no expectation that this very political and high-profile decision would be made, which is to say that in the next five years, there will be no more federal private prison beds used by the Bureau of Prisons. Now, a caveat here, this announcement doesn't include private prison beds used by other federal agencies mainly by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which at any given time holds more than 20,000 people in contracted beds, nor does it affect immediately states that privatize prisons. But the federal government, the Department of Justice, does sort of set the standard, set the tone for the criminal justice system more broadly. And I think there is a sense, and it may be part of why CCA and GEO groups' stocks plummeted after the announcement, there's a sense that this may start to leak out into 
other institutions, advocates are now pushing ICE to follow in the path of the DOJ. Well, I think there's a lesson here. Facts matter. The job of the nation is to uncover the key facts and then use them as tools for political and social change. Seth Fried Wessler, you did it. You changed America. Thank you for that. And thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me on. Now it's time for Trump Talk. Today's topic, the power couple behind Donald Trump. The two people in the world he listens to most, not the new guy from the Breitbart News website and the new campaign manager, but rather Trump's daughter Ivanka and her husband Jared Kushner. Jared is 35 years old. The New York Times has called him Trump's de facto campaign manager. He has no experience in politics, but Trump, we are told, listens to him. Jared pushed for the ouster of campaign chief Paul Manafort after his ties to pro-Putin politicians from the Ukraine became public. And Ivanka is a longtime ally of Kellyanne Conway. Now Manafort is out, and Kellyanne Conway is the new campaign manager. For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. She's a frequent guest here, a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She's also the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, Politico, and lots more. She won the National Book Critics Circle Award for her most recent book about Haiti. It's called Farewell, Fred Voodoo. And she also teaches in the literary journalism program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Hi, John. Jared Kushner is 35 years old. The New York Times calls him Trump's de facto campaign manager. He's had no experience in politics, but we're told Trump listens to him. Perhaps it's no surprise that the daughter of a real estate king in Manhattan married the son of a real estate king in New Jersey. But from the perspective of Jared Kushner's family, Ivanka Trump was not what they had in mind for their son. Yeah, she wasn't exactly right, because uh, the Kushners are an Orthodox Jewish family. Um, Jared was brought up what is called Shomer Shabbat, which means uh, observant of the Sabbath. And uh, they keep kosher, and uh, it's a serious Jewish family. And then this, you know, Shiksa goddess literally comes into their family. (laughs) And I believe that it, I read that it worked out not very well at first, and they broke up for a year because of the parents. But then they got back together, and she's now no longer a Shiksa goddess. She's a Jewish goddess, and she converted, which is not a, not an easy thing. Even with a very tolerant rabbi, you still have to work pretty hard to, to convert. Jared Kushner, one of Trump's two closest advisors, has one fact in his family history overshadows everything else in his life. His father spent a year in federal prison. This is right after Jared graduated from Harvard. That has got to mar you for life. Yeah, I think that is a a terrible thing to happen to a person, especially someone who was associated with his father already in in a business way. Just as Ivanka, if you recall, alert listeners, uh, was a supermodel when she was in high school. Jared was converting apartments in Somerville, Massachusetts, and making a ton of money up there while he was in college. So these are two kids who are 
business-minded, and Jared learned everything he knew from his dad, and then suddenly this figure of, to him, great respect and, and dignity and fun was in prison. And echoes in the Republican campaign, it was Chris Christie, a prosecutor in New Jersey, who sent, who brought federal charges against his father of corruption and bribery and sent his father to prison. And we wonder why he's not the vice presidential candidate. <laughs> <Good point. laughs> so what exactly are Jared Kushner's politics? What are his family's politics? Well, as far as I understand it, his parents were among the biggest, if not the biggest, contributors to Hillary Clinton's Senate campaign in New York. So I would say they're kind of, let's characterize Hillary Clinton's politics, shall we? Please. Um, moderate, conservative progressives. So a family that is the biggest contributors to Hillary's first campaign for the Senate. This is the one where she ends her career as, as a political wife and launches herself as an independent political candidate in her own name, really and, the turning point of her life. And in one of her first acts as senator, her first social acts, she goes to the Kushner's house for Shabbat dinner. So that's how valuable they were to her at that moment. So Jared comes out of a Wall Street Democratic background, not really terribly different from Donald Trump, really. Right. Exact. The exact thing. But then he so, sort of began to morph. In an interesting move, he came and took over the New York Observer, which was this great kind of gadfly paper in New York City full of gossip about the media and politics and celebrities and the wealthy. It was like a spot you would go to to find out every little piece of Nasty gossip, I would say, about everybody powerful in the city. And Jared took it over. Why did Jared want to buy and run the New York newspaper? He hadn't been on the Harvard Crimson or the high school paper. No, he was not a journalistic-minded type of any kind. I think he wanted to be at a locus of power in the society. And, you know, that tra traditionally, I know it's hard to believe in this economic climate, this media economic climate, but the newspaper was a way to become influential in a city. Uh, and I think he was laboring under the delusion that it might still be that. And he went to the New York Observer and basically destroyed the paper. I speak from personal knowledge because I had a lot of friends who worked there, including this woman who just wrote the uh, New Yorker article, Lizzie Whittacombe, who was an intern there. And for a while he worked with Peter Kaplan, who was the quite brilliant editor of the New York uh, Observer and who had founded it. And then uh, Kaplan couldn't stand it anymore and quit. And, it, it, you know, there are many, many stories of what Jared Kushner was doing there, like making lists of hundred celebrities who are most important in New York. By the way, there's a funny little part of that. While he was working on it, before he was going out with Ivanka, Trump was number 38. <laughs> and, like, somehow someone had leaked this to Trump, and the phone starts to ring. <laughs> 38? <laughs> The big crisis for Jared Kushner during the Trump campaign, at least up to this moment, was not Trump's remarks about the so-called Mexican judge or the idea of the wall or, or of banning Muslims. The big crisis for Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, was that Trump tweet with a picture of Hillary against a stack of $100 bills and a six-pointed star and the headline, Most Corrupt candidate ever, Jared's Jewish relatives didn't like that. Yeah, because, I mean, 
to anyone this was the Star of David. Uh, and so it was obviously an anti-Semitic piece of propaganda, and it had come actually off the uh, white supremacist website. So people started upbraiding him, people he knew, and someone said, come on, Jared, you went to Harvard, you know what this is. Why don't you say it was a huge embarrassment? But he didn't. He wouldn't do it. In fact, he, he recalled the memory of his, his Holocaust victim family members. Have I got this right? And, and said, how could he be accused of participating in an anti-Semitic slur on Twitter since he, his grandparents had died in the Holocaust? Nice trivializing of your grandparents' doom. <laughs> well, that was what his, uh, the other side of the family uh, thought about this. But let's be honest about the Kushner family. One of the reasons that Jared's dad went to prison was strife in the Kushner family in which they gave information to the DA and... It's not a pretty thing, the two sides of that family. You're from New Jersey politics. Uh, how? Uh, I feel that's an accusation <laughs> in this Perhaps context. You could give us some insight into the way that Jared Kushner's father went to federal prison and its place in the New Jersey politics and in the rise of Chris Christie. Well, it was a struggle over money and how the money would play out. It was a struggle over power in the Kushner empire. And, uh, of course, any intelligent uh, prosecutor sees a rich family somewhat famous in the state, and he goes after that because that's going to make his name. And so, of course, putting Kushner in prison helped build Christie's reputation. So the political base of the Trump campaign is older, white, working-class men in the Rust Belt, in coal country, in the Deep South, what do Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump have to do with older white working class men in the Rust Belt? Well, I think that, I mean, probably every Friday night, that kind of person is invited to the uh, $10 million, however, New York City penthouse apartment for Shabbat dinner. Don't you, John? <laughs> um, what do they have to do with them? Nothing. And, and that's what makes the kind of supermarket tabloid phenomenon so important, is that the Trumps are aspirational. That's what they've been about this whole time. So you can imagine yourself into Trump because he's so, you know, willing to talk to you at whatever level he thinks you're at anyway. And he is speaking to them. I mean, he did say famously, I love the poorly educated. Now, I don't know what someone who didn't get a college degree feels about that. If I were that person, I wouldn't be happy that Trump says he loves the poorly educated, but but maybe he does. And he's trying to speak to them. And as we know, really, the two parties have not been speaking to those people in any visceral or emotional way. And Trump is willing to do that. I don't, you know, it's not good, but it's it's something. It's a phenomenon. So Jared Kushner is a young man who has no experience in politics at all. His family is sort of has been Wall Street Democrats. And let's not forget that what he decided to do at The Observer was take on Rupert Murdoch as his mentor, which is how he sort of drifted into conservatism. You know, his father did go to jail, so maybe he stopped respecting his father as much as he might have. I'm just you know, why not? guessing, why not? Why not? And and here comes Murdoch, a, a very powerful father figure, at least for those who are not his children. Um, <laughs> and he started sort of taking on all the conservative politics of Murdoch. And that's 
that's really when he switched. The one big thing Jared did with the family real estate empire in New Jersey is he, in a way, followed the example of Donald Trump and moved the family enterprises to Manhattan. According to the New Yorker piece, in 2007, Jared basically sold all the Kushner family holdings in New Jersey and put all the money into buying 666 Fifth Avenue. The ineptly named 666 (laughs) Fifth Avenue. Well, even more inept, this was 2007. And you may remember that in 2008, the New York real estate market, along with all the rest of the world economy, suffered the biggest crash since the 1930s. The Kushners didn't have enough income from their now semi-empty building to pay the debt service and had to sell the retail portions of it. So Jared's big move was one of the great disasters, yet he is still active buying properties and is a player in New York real estate. Yes, failure rises in New York, like Donald Trump. So why do you think Donald Trump, the man with narcissistic personality disorder, listens to 35-year-old Jared Kushner, the real estate kid from New Jersey who doesn't know much about politics at all. My guess is that Donald Trump controls Jared Kushner, and Donald Trump controls Ivanka Trump, and that's what it's all about. He, it's an echo chamber where he listens to the person who's most likely going to say what he wants him to say. Besides, I think he listens more to Ivanka than he does to Jared. But that being the case, Jared being the most influential man, I think it's all, it's all about uh, the narcissist looking at the things he's created and, and accepting them over anything else. Amy Willens, thanks again for coming in today. Thanks, John. Let's talk about Edward Snowden. For that, we turn to Ben Weisner. He's director of the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. He works at the intersection of civil liberties and national security. He's challenged the government in court over surveillance practices, targeted killing, and torture. He's also Edward Snowden's lawyer. Ben Weisner, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. It's been three years since his revelations about NSA spying. His Twitter page now says, quote, I used to work for the government, now I work for the public. Remind us, how many documents did Edward Snowden release to the public? Well, the number that he released to the public is zero. Uh, This gets a little bit lost sometimes in the Sturm und Drang of the debate. Every document that's been published from what we now call the Snowden Archive was published after a news organization made a determination that publishing that document or portions of that document would be in the public interest uh, and would not cause harm to national security. Uh, Snowden's instructions to the journalists to whom he entrusted the archive uh, were that they were to use their judgment, not his, and that they were in all instances to consult with government officials, give them an opportunity to raise specific, specific objections, but then make their determination about what should be published or not. There was a lot of talk about the harm that we heard from official sources, I believe it was grave and irreparable harm that Edward Snowden's revelations were said to have done to the national security of the United States. What do we know about the extent of that harm? We don't know anything. And we don't know anything because no government official has come forward with any remotely specific or credible evidence that there has been harm. We instead hear the same rhetoric that we've heard for generations in this country that, you know, publication of this information has or will 
cause grave damage to national security. Look, what the government means by that is that it caused diplomatic embarrassment. That's true. They mean that it has created difficulties in their relationship with technology companies. That's also true. These are good things. Uh, we want them to have difficulty in their relationships with the surveillance economy. Uh, but as far as actually putting anybody in harm's way or interfering with legitimate capabilities, I don't think a shred of evidence has been presented that that's occurred. What about the 55 terrorist plots which were compromised, the discovery of which was compromised? I thought it was 54. Maybe it was 55. But, you know, these were numbers that were brought forward by, by the NSA and by their apologists early on. And, uh, and those numbers really collapsed under scrutiny. Uh, you know, you had people from the intelligence committees in Congress like Senator Wyden saying, I have seen all of your classified evidence and there's no evidence that that's the case. You know, you had presidentially appointed commissions looking at these programs and making their determination that the, that, that the NSA's call metadata program never contributed to disrupting a single terrorist plot. They eventually said, well, we actually think that this program helped us uh, wrap up one terrorist plot, and that plot involved a Somali-American cab driver sending $8,000 to a group that may or may not have been the Shabaab, uh, and it's pretty clear that the government could have prosecuted that case without any evidence from the NSA surveillance program. So, so again, we're getting a pretty raw deal here where, you know, the government is shredding the Fourth Amendment and we're not even getting, getting anything in return. How did it happen that you became Edward Snowden's lawyer? Well... Uh, the short answer is that over the years that I've worked on these kinds of issues, I got to know both Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras very well. And so uh, at the time when they realized that Snowden's needs went beyond anything they could do, uh, that he needed a lawyer who would advocate for his interests, uh, they put us in touch with each other. I was marginally involved before that, uh, you know, only because uh, I was one of the people to whom Laura Poitras came for advice after she first started receiving encrypted messages from someone who claimed to be uh, a senior intelligence official with important evidence to share. I knew that Laura and Glenn were going to be getting on a plane to go to Hong Kong to meet someone. None of us knew who it was. Uh, and I certainly didn't learn his identity before you did um, when it was you know, broadcast in that incredible video on the, the Guardian website. But, but that's the short story of how I got involved. <laughs> I've heard that if Snowden had consulted attorneys before he went to Hong Kong, they would have advised him it was a bad idea. What would you have told them? Well, I mean, I think it's, it, it puts a lawyer in a extremely difficult ethical situation if someone like that comes to you before. Um, uh, you know, as a lawyer, you can't advise somebody to violate the Espionage Act and subject himself to decades in prison. Uh, nor would I want to be in a position to tell somebody not to do that. You, you know, I think people need to be the arbiters of their own risk and make those kinds of decisions for themselves. Now, it doesn't matter, though, because Snowden knew that he couldn't go to a lawyer or to anybody else. Uh, he didn't want anybody to be potentially implicated uh, or viewed as a, a co-conspirator or accessory. Uh, anyone who who ha had knowledge of what he was planning to do, who didn't take steps to, to stop it, could have been you know, sort of brought into a criminal investigation. He knew that he had to put all the risk on his own shoulders, um, uh, and whatever advice he was going to get would have to come later on. Edward Snowden has been living in Moscow now for three years. The United States doesn't seem to be trying very hard to bring him back and put him on trial. 
Well, you know, there is no extradition treaty. Uh, I think the U.S. tried pretty hard in the summer of 2013 to persuade the Russians to extradite him. It doesn't seem like they ever had any intention of doing that, you know, particularly after they saw the lengths to which the U.S. would go. Um, you know, in that summer, the president of Bolivia was visiting Russia. Uh, he took off to fly back to Bolivia. Uh, this is at a time when Snowden was trapped at the airport in Moscow. The Bolivian president's plane took off from a different airport in Moscow. Nonetheless, the U.S., suspecting that there was a possibility that Snowden might be stashed away on the Bolivian president's plane, uh, had their European allies ground that plane in Europe, in Austria, uh, and searched to see if Snowden was on board. This suggests the United States intelligence isn't very good. Well, <laughs> I think they're actually quite good in a lot of ways. Um, but it, what it really shows mm. is at that point, the extreme lengths that they were willing to go, uh, even to sort of violate the sovereignty of a head of state in order to bring Snowden back. My personal sense is that three years down the line, uh, the U.S. takes a pretty different view of this. Uh, and they realize that it would do huge damage to our soft power among important allies, and particularly among a youth generation, if we were to put Snowden on trial for espionage. After the contributions that he's made, to privacy and security around the world. Um, now, Snowden's reputation it has improved considerably in the United States, but outside the United States, um, he's viewed in most countries as a hero. Uh, and for us to, to lock him away, you know, as if he were no different than a spy, um, I think would damage uh, the U.S.'s reputation and its credibility and its authority in the world for no good reason. And what was it that the European Parliament voted? Yes, a majority of the members of the European Parliament voted on a resolution in favor of a, of a resolution calling on member states not to extradite Edward Snowden if he appears in those countries, saying that the charges against him under the Espionage Act are political uh, and that he should be entitled to asylum. Now, that's not a binding resolution. It, it doesn't require the countries to abide by it. That's a decision that's made by the countries, not by the parliament. But it's it's a real milestone, uh, I think, in the progress that he's made um, from, you know, hunted fugitive and felon to real global thinker and leader on these issues. Edward Snowden has said he'd like to come home and he'd be willing to go to jail. You're his lawyer. What can you tell us about this? Well, you know, this isn't the place to talk about what conversations that we've had with the government, and this isn't the place to talk to the government uh, either uh, about it. So, you know, what I will say is that, of course, um, uh, over the years, there have been all kinds of contacts, uh, formal and informal, with government officials about whether there could be a resolution that would work for both sides. You know, I don't think we ever got very close on, on what an appropriate resolution um, would be. You know, Snowden has been saying all along that if he could get a fair trial uh, and not just uh, essentially reporting for sentencing in prison, uh, that he would have been here from the start. He would have gone to a lawyer's office rather than to the airport. Let's just talk about for a minute what a trial would be like for Edward Snowden under the Espionage Act where he is charged. You would put him on the stand. You would ask him why he released these classified documents to the news media. What would the prosecution say? Well, this isn't hypothetical at all. Daniel Ellsberg tells this story of what happened in his own trial for releasing the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times. Um, you know, this was a moment that had been rehearsed with his lawyers. Uh, they said, Mr. Ellsberg, why did you provide the Pentagon Papers to the media? 
And the government prosecution said objection, and the judge said sustained. His motivation was irrelevant. Uh, the only thing the government needs to show in an Espionage Act prosecution is that uh, the defendant provided national defense information to someone who was unauthorized to receive it. Um, so the fact that Snowden's disclosures led to historic legal reforms, led to lawsuits that resulted in programs being held illegal, led to legislation in Congress that restricted the authority of the NSA, that the president has called the debate valuable, that the former attorney general has said that Snowden performed a public service. This would not just be irrelevant under the Espionage Act. It would be inadmissible in a trial. Uh, really, the only facts that would have to be presented are facts to which Snowden has already confessed that he was the one who gave the information to Barton Gellman, Glenn Greenwald, and Laura Poitras. Uh, so it really wouldn't be a trial at all. Uh, it would be a sentencing. So a trial under the Espionage Act is out of the question. What about, hypothetically, some other charges? There, There is a precedent for a plea deal with a misdemeanor charge of leaking documents, General Petraeus. General Petraeus, and then on the, on the more positive side, Thomas Drake, who was a senior NSA official who was charged with felonies, including the Espionage Act, and ended up pleading to misdemeanors and not serving any jail time at all, and also General Petraeus, exactly. I didn't object to the lenient treatment for General Petraeus. I just thought that that kind of courtesy should be extended to people who don't have friends in high places. I have no problem with prosecutorial discretion on the basis that somebody has performed valuable service. Uh, I just think there are different ways to perform valuable service. Uh, and so if the federal government believes that Petraeus's service in the military is a strong enough mitigating factor that he shouldn't be punished for uh, what were serious felonies, that might be an appropriate resolution. But it's not an appropriate resolution if powerful people get that lenient treatment. Uh, and people like Edward Snowden, who don't tow the government line, uh, people like Chelsea Manning, uh, serve decades in prison for similar conduct. And there's one other possibility, a presidential pardon. Well, I look, I think this is the kind of case that the pardon power exists for. It, it, it allows the ultimate exercise of executive discretion. It would allow President Obama to say, maybe I don't agree with the way this person did this. Maybe I wish that it had gone a different way. I wish that the country could have had a debate in a different way. But the fact is, we didn't have that debate. The fact is that we would not have had that debate uh, without Edward Snowden breaking the rules, violating his contract with the intelligence community in order to uphold his oath uh, to the Constitution. The pardon power doesn't exist for people who didn't break the law. It exists for people who did. And, you know, I would say this. You know, the pardon power was famously used for President Nixon even before he had been charged. Uh, if you don't like that case, uh, look around Washington, D.C. Uh, there's a lot of people in that town who never were even charged with the serious crimes that they committed. We don't call that pardon. Uh, uh, you know, we call that looking forward instead of looking backwards. But, uh, you, you know, again, I would say uh, if that kind of leniency in the public interest, in the national interest, is available to Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, Richard Nixon, David Addington, John Yoo, uh, let's make it available to Edward Snowden as well. Ben Weisner, thanks for your work on this, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much, John. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our recording engineer is Ernesto Orellano. 
Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Say,